you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave to them and get their attention. They'll get one into your hands. And we try to cover chapter 2 or 3 or so on a Sunday night, so it's a little hard to follow without being able to listen and also to be able to read for yourself. And then if you don't have a Bible, own one, then feel free to take that one home as a gift uh, from the Lord. Job chapter 1. With the completion of the book of Esther, which was our last Sunday night together, we concluded uh, a section of the Old Testament known as the historical books. And so uh, the Old Testament is broken up into sections, the Pentateuch, the, the law, historical books, uh, and, and books of poetry, then into the major prophets and the minor prophets. And so the, we came out officially of that section of the uh, Old Testament known as the historical books, and we now enter into a new section of the Old Testament known as the poetical books, or the book, uh, books of poems. And this section of the Bible includes five books, the book of Job, uh, the book of Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. It may be interesting, we ought to at least know it, I'm certainly not going to teach it in that way because you essentially need to know Hebrew in order to do that, and I don't know Hebrew, but it's interesting to realize that the book of Job is, um, it's a poem. It's Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry is a little different than ours where we're really, you know, kind of dependent on rhyme and that kind of thing, especially those of us who are like super novices related to poetry. But the book of, of Job is, uh, is poetic in, in its form. These poetic books are interesting and they're an important part uh, of the Bible. And they really have a way when you talk about Job or Proverbs or Psalm or Ecclesiastes or Song of Solomon. Uh, these are books that God's people have gravitated to for hundreds and for thousands of years because they're very, very experiential. Uh, they're uh, very emotional. In, in the best sense of the word, the exploring of emotion and relationship uh, with God. And so we, when we come into the uh, poetic books, we're not dealing so much with nations anymore. We're dealing with individuals and their personal relationship with God, how they navigated their relationship with God through difficult times. All the same things that we face today. The technology is different. Man is not different. The trials are not different. Uh, the material kind of things that are a part of our world, washers, dryers, cars breaking, whatever, all this is all different. For them, it's camels, it's mules, it's donkeys, it's this kind of thing. But, but we relate to it uh, on that, that kind of level. And so it, re, it deals with the human heart, and we see all of this in the book of Job because it's the story of a man of his faith and of his God. The book of Job is, of course, named after its main character, and it's widely thought, and I think this is interesting, and what I think is interesting, I'm going to tell you. Uh, so, but it's named after the main character, Job, and it is widely thought uh, by many, many Bible scholars that Job lived at about the same time as the Jewish patriarch, uh, Abraham. And so when we read the book of Job, there is the potential that we are reading the oldest revelation of God uh, in, inspired by the Holy Spirit, nothing older in the Bible. 
except for the first 11 chapters of the book uh, of Genesis. Now, some of the reasons for believing that Job was a contemporary of Abraham or uh, nearly so, maybe a little bit older, maybe a little bit younger than him, is that I'll give you a handful of reasons because it is interesting. Job lived 140 years after his calamities that are uh, detailed here in the book of, of Job. And so he probably, uh, he had adult children by the time all of these things happened in his life. And so he probably lived to about 210 years of age. And that corresponds roughly to the length of uh, uh, people's lives during the time of the patriarch. We remember that Terah, who was the father of Abraham, he lived to the age of 205. Abraham lived to be 175. Isaac, 185 years old. Jacob died at the age of 147. The second reason that this book kind of dates itself toward the era of Abraham is that Job's wealth is all described not in terms of money, not in terms of silver, not in terms of gold, but in terms of servants, in terms of flocks and herds and and livestock, which was also true at the time of Abraham. Also, as we're going to see in the first chapter, the Sabians and the Chaldeans, two groups of people that are described, and Satan uses them in in, uh, bringing great destruction and, and, and heartbreak into Job's life. They're described at the time of Job as being nomadic tribes. And uh, later on we, uh, in history, they become established people groups and established nations. But this is speaking of them at a time where they have, don't have an established kind of homeland. They're uh, uh, nomadic. Later years, they would not be nomadic. And the book of Job also has no references to the Mosaic institutions, the law of Moses or the things that God uh, spoke to the children of Israel through the law of Moses. Job was not a Jew, probably not a Jew at all, probably a Gentile. Uh, But there's no mention of the Ten Commandments. There's no mention of sacrifices, no mention of the Levitical priesthood, no mention of a tabernacle, no mention of a temple, nothing like that. And so it indicates that he pre-existed the time of Moses and the giving of the law of Moses. And in fact, we're going to see in chapter 1, so much we're going to see in chapter 1 when we get to it. But... uh, we're going to see that he offers burnt offerings on behalf of his children uh, as the head of his household. And he wouldn't have done that uh, if the law of Moses had been established because that was something that was reserved for the Levitical priesthood. There are a lot of other reasons, but that's enough for our purposes here this evening. And I think it helps us to kind of date that in our mind. It's a tremendous revelation of God, early revelation of God. And it also helps us to understand a little bit in looking. Job is trying to figure out the trial that he is in the middle of. Uh, Not in the way that you and I could process a trial. We would do that in the light of the revelation of the Old Testament and the New Testament. He didn't have either of those. He did not know about God, what we know about God. He didn't even know about God what Moses knew about God. So he knew a lot of things, but he didn't have the kind of privilege and revelation that we enjoy, which makes his faith in God 
uh, all the more uh, impressive uh, to me and, and really, really astonishing. I mean, God's work in his life. I think it's also important to realize that the book of Job is not religious fiction. Sometimes people will uh, say that it is. Well, they've made up this man by the name of Job and put him through some series of catastrophes that could have never happened and no one would ever survive it, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, but that's to defy, you know, the revelation uh, of the book. Uh, this Job was a real person. How do we know? We have that on the highest authority, on the authority of God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, the prophet Ezekiel, and the writer of the book of James in the New Testament. God spoke through Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 14, and he said in terms of his judgment upon the children of Israel, he said, but even if these three men... Noah, Daniel, and Job. Oh, no, he's a figment of my... Oh, no, he's a, no, he's a, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it in Israel. They would, uh, uh, would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God. James wrote in James chapter 5. He said, My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed to endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord was very compassionate and merciful. So we're talking about a real man who went through an extraordinary time in order that we might be able to read of God's dealing in his life and pull those lessons into our own life as well. Before we get into it, I want to talk about the theme of the book without getting, you know, becoming too academic related to it, but it's very helpful to understand. Now, if we sit down and if we wanted to maintain the drama of the book, then we just begin in chapter 1, verse 1, and head right through, and everybody that's new to the book will just be on the edge of their seat and uh, wondering what's going to happen next and why was all of this going on and what's the meaning of this whole thing uh, for my life. But if, sometimes if we really want to study something and really have it uh, take a, a deeper level in our lives, it helps us to understand what the author is up to, the point of the book, so that when we then go through the book, it's reinforcing that point in our lives, and we don't just discover it at the end of the book and then, re and then think to ourselves, oh, no, how am I going to backtrack that lesson all the way through the book? And so it kills a little suspense, but it's very helpful for learning the book, which is our purpose here on, on Sunday night. Sunday morning's all about suspense, but on Sunday night, we're here to... You know how suspenseful I am in my sermons. The theme of the book is this, that God is worthy of our trust even when we can't understand his ways in our lives. In chapter 1 of the book of Job, God establishes Job's blameless character. In chapter 2, he reveals the uh, unseen and unknown, uh, the unseen reason for the suffering that was introduced into Job's life and that it had nothing to do with some kind of a flaw in his character. And uh, so, uh, and, and the whole reason behind this, this unseen reason behind his suffering was that he was the great object lesson to silence the lie of the devil that God's people will only follow God for what he gives and not for who he is in our lives, not for him. 
In chapters 3 through 37, Job's friends or his comforters, uh, they come on the scene and they just start to take wild stabs at why Job's in the trial that he's in. They just start to guess like crazy. And they don't have the foggiest idea of what's really going on, but they try to figure it out. So they're uncomfortable with mystery in a relationship with God. They've got to know everything, even if what they know is uh, self-produced and wrong. And so they are going to come up with the idea, they're going to try and figure out why Job is in the pickle that he's in, and they ultimately land on two reasons. It must be that Job has secret sin in his life or that he is a secret hypocrite because nothing this hard could happen to a person except that there was sin in his life that God was judging him for. And then in chapters 38 through 41... Um, after kind of a long chapters uh, 3 through 37 uh, absence, God breaks back into the scene and he breaks his silence by asking Job a series of questions. Three chapters of Job. uh, Do you know this? Do you know this? Have you seen this? Can you do this? He poses three chapters of just unending questions to Job, not one of which Job is able to answer. That are the questions that God uh, asks of him. In other words, what God was doing, he was putting Job to the I think I know better than God test, and Job failed that test miserably. And God drove home the point that Job was not smarter uh, than God and that he should rest in that uh, rather than fighting that, and so should we when we don't understand uh, his ways in our lives at the moment. I think it's also fascinating to understand and to realize that in the book of Job, God never explains to Job the reasons for his suffering, never once. In fact, God never even mentions them to Job. He didn't enter into any kind of, God didn't enter any kind of a discussion concerning uh, the theology of evil with Job. He didn't answer uh, all of Job's why questions. In fact, he didn't answer any of Job's why questions. And again, as I said, he never even brought up Job's sufferings. But what he did do was fascinating. And what he did was to simply prove to Job and to remind Job that he is a very, very big God, and that he is worthy of Job's trust, whether Job understands or understood God's dealings in his life or didn't understand God's dealings in his life, and that in our relationship with God, we walk by faith and not by explanation. God will always give us all of the reasons we will ever need to walk by faith, but he'll never give us so many reasons that it will cease to be a walk by faith. And the fact that God has given us far greater reasons for maintaining our faith in him during times of great trial than we would ever possess by having him explain every action of his in our lives. Our greatest need in times of great trial is not for an explanation from God, though that's what we think we need most in a time of difficulty is for God to explain himself. But the fact of the matter is our greatest need is for a greater vision of God. 
Not an explanation, but a greater vision of the greatness of God. And God understands that to be the greatest need that we have in times of deep trial, a vision of God that is needed for the greatness of that trial. And that's what God is what God gave Job in asking those questions, giving him a greater vision of the greatness of God. I couldn't answer a single one of those questions, Job could say, that God asked of me, and God knew the answer to all of those questions and was behind the answer to all of those questions. And where in the world do we get this greater vision of God that we need in times of trial? We get it from his word. Romans says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You cannot and I cannot trust who we don't know. I can pretend to trust who I don't know, but that's a pretend faith. I cannot truly trust who I do not know. And that's why it's important what we're doing here tonight and the study of the Word of God and growing in our knowledge of the Lord. We're growing in our understanding of Him, of His greatness, and it's preparing us for all manner of things, but also preparing us for the difficulty that comes into every Christian's life. And when I come to know God through the greatest way that you can come to know God and come to appreciate His greatness, and that's through His Word, it is to come to realize that I can commit the wise of life to Him. And instead of asking why of Him, to instead rest in His wisdom and in His power and in His love, even when we don't understand His dealings at the moment. And so this is the theme of the book. And so you say, well, great, I don't have to come the rest of the weeks that I'll be here. You've encapsulated the book. If you don't come, God's going to judge you like you can. You think this book is hard. God doesn't use guilt or condemnation to motivate his people, but pastors sometimes do. Chapter 1 is a prologue, kind of sets the stage for the whole book. And we get begins with a description of Job. There was a man in the land of Uz. We don't really know where this city is uh, today. Uh, uh, archaeologically, the find or anything. Uh, it appears that it was not in the land of Canaan, in the promised land. Again, Job is probably not a Jew. Uh, but it's probably a city located close to Canaan or Israel. A lot of scholars believe that it was a city located in the uh, kingdom of Edom, which is uh, borders up, uh, bordered up to uh, Canaan. So he lived in uh, the land of, of Uz. Concerning his character, we're told, uh, his name was Job, and his character, he was blameless. This speaks of his relationship with God. It doesn't mean that he was sinless. He wasn't sinless, but that there was nothing that anyone could point at in his life and blame him of in terms of, of wrongdoing or sin. And the word blameless, it literally means to be complete. The idea is toward God, uh, whole, uh, having integrity. So he's going to be accused a little bit later of being a hypocrite, an actor, uh, of having secret sin, that he's living a compartmentalized life, a double life. And we're told right at the onset that he was blameless 
Every part of his life, uh, the full integrity of his life was fully committed to God and to God's standard. And so he was a whole person, blameless, upright. That refers to his relationship with his fellow man. The word upright means straight. And so he was straight in his dealings morally and ethically with his fellow man. We're also told that he was one who feared God. He knew God. He had a relationship with God. And more than that, he had a deep, deep reverence and respect for God. So this guy has a real relationship with God. And how do we know that? And he shunned evil. Out of his own personal relationship with God, the shunning of evil, the highest motivation is not that I'll get caught doing evil. The highest motivation is because I have a relationship with God and I don't want to do evil because it's going to hurt him. It's going to uh, mar his reputation. It's going to hurt his heart. And so this is the kind of relationship he had with God. It translated into the daily of his life and he shunned evil. He just actively turned away from evil and there was plenty of evil in the world in those days. And he did so because of his relationship with the Lord. This description of his character is going to be repeated again in verse 8. Also going to be repeated again in chapter 2, verse 3. And the reason it's going to be repeated is the Holy Spirit wants to drive home the point in our lives that this is really who Job was. Again, because we're going to go through uh, chapters 3 through 30-something of him being accused of being anything but this. And, and so we're going to, he wants to establish, absolutely God does, that he wasn't a hypocrite, didn't have sin in his life as his friends are going to contend on and on and on. Concerning his family, he had seven sons and three daughters who were born to him. And uh, so seven is the number of completion in the Bible, seven days in a week, seven uh, colors in the rainbow. So to have seven sons, three daughters, a total of ten, ten is the number of ten. I don't know what that number of ten is. It means something, the number of government or something like that. But um, so uh, you divide the seven by the three and you multiply it times the ten and then you get, is it, and it's your age, isn't it? Ever have people do that to you, you know? So I say that I'm a little skeptical of a lot of numerology, but seven is the number of completion. So he's rich in terms of his family. He's got uh, all of these children, and we remember... However, children are esteemed in our culture today, not super highly esteemed in the Western world because we're trying to have as few of them as we can. But is there any harder place in the whole wide world to raise children than in Western, ungodly Western culture? I wonder why people don't want to have kids. You've got to fight tooth and nail against the most amazing powers to try and raise a decent kid, much less a godly kid. So here, but in those days, children were considered to be a blessing from the Lord. And I know we consider our children to be that as well because we're children of God too. They are a heritage. They are a gift from God. So he's rich here uh, in his family. And, and so he's got the seven sons. He's got the three daughters. got the large family. And as we're going to see in just a moment, uh, he had all ten of these children by one wife, which is another mark of his uh, this wife, one was enough, trust me. So, but it, it speaks to us about the, uh, about 
his godliness because he's living in a time in the world where if you had wealth, especially the kind of wealth that he had, uh, the tendency of rich men were to multiply wives to themselves. So he has integrity even before the law of Moses. He has the integrity of, of having uh, one wife. This is his family, something really right out of uh, the early chapters of, uh, of Genesis. In terms of his possessions, he had 7,000 sheep. In those days, if you had three sheep, you were a rich man. It's, I mean, you, you had, food was taken care of for the foreseeable future for you. So 7,000, speaking of, of for the purposes of uh, food and wool, clothing, this kind of thing. 3,000 uh, camels. Camels were kind of like the pickup trucks of the ancient world, used for transportation. So he's got a big old uh, em- kind of... Uh, industry going on in terms of herding and probably some uh, farming going on as well. 3,000 camel, 500 yoke of oxen. So you got a lot of something being plowed, uh, commerce, business going on. 500 female donkeys, again, uh, a a little plusher kind of transportation. And then a very large household. It would have taken a lot of servants in order to be able to uh, manage this, uh, uh, this, these size of these herds and uh, and these flocks. So he's extremely wealthy. Uh, wealth being measured in terms of of the size of the flocks in those days, uh, rather than in money. And so we're told that he was, and so this man was the greatest of all the people in the East. So you think of today, we think of Donald Trump, or we think of. Um, you know who's the who's the stock market guy or the Buffett, yeah. So or Gates, we think of these people immediately. You just think of fortune in our culture. So the very name of Job in those days, um, then it had that kind of an effect. He was known everywhere as the greatest of all the people of the of the East. And then we see his concern, his spirituality, his concern for his family. And his sons would go and they would feast in their houses, each one on his appointed day. And they would send and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So on some kind of regular set occasions, you've got seven sons here. Everyone, all of the sons are, are adults. We don't know if the daughters are, perhaps. And so they have established their own households. And so maybe on their given birthdays, they would have a big feast, invite the rest of the family, or maybe some kind of a special uh, family deal or, or a special kind of religious holiday or something. But they would have this feast and everyone uh, would, would come together and they would celebrate it together. And in inviting the sisters, we it's, were given this picture of a very, very close, very loving family, a family that really enjoyed one another's uh, company. And so uh, when it was when the days of the feasting would run their course, that Job would then send and sanctify them, and he would rise up early in the morning. He would offer burnt offerings according to the number of all of them. He'd offer a burnt offering for each one of the ten children. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And thus did Job did regularly uh, the idea at the end of each of these uh, feasting 
uh, days. And so after the festivities were over, he'd offer these burnt offerings. And it was kind of his way of interceding for them and uh, for God's favor to be upon their lives and to say, God, even if they've committed a sin that's inadvertent in their life, uh, obviously they were living outwardly exemplary lives because he wasn't offering sacrifices for that. But he was just, he, he was just wanting uh, them, he was wanting them to have the kind of relationship with God that he had. That's what he wanted for him, And so this was his means of, of intercession and impacting their life uh, in, in that way. And he did all of this uh, regularly. So uh, here he is. And, it, and it, one of the beautiful things, again, we see about Job is so often when people reach this kind of a level of prosperity in their life, it means the end of their relationship with God. Or the relationship with God gets put on the back burner because they're running this empire or now covetousness or materialism has taken over their life. So here's a man who has uh, tremendous wealth and yet he's maintaining priorities in his life and, and keeping God first. So the picture that we have here in verses 1 through 5 is a picture of a man who is rich in every way that a human being can be rich. He was rich spiritually in his relationship with God. He's rich concerning his family, rich in terms of uh, godly character. He is rich in terms of reputation uh, in, the, in that entire part of the world, and he is rich materially. And the point that the Holy Spirit's making here is that no, uh, of all of the people in the whole world at that time, no one deserved suffering less than Job deserved uh, the suffering that was going to come his way. And we come then to verse 6, and uh, it begins the testing of Job. Now, there was a day when the sons of God, and that's an Old Testament phrase for angelic beings. Angels are the sons of God, not in the sense that Jesus is the Son of God. They are the sons of God and that they are uh, created by God. And so there was a day when the sons of God, they came to present themselves before the Lord. That's all we know about it. There's no, there was apparently uh, times where the uh, angelic beings would come before the Lord. Something would happen as a result of this gathering. We don't have any revelation in the book of Job here related to it, merely that they presented themselves before the Lord. And interestingly enough, we're told that Satan also came among them. Uh, it's interesting to realize, they say, well, what in the world is Satan doing in heaven? He still has access to heaven. The Bible says that he accuses the brethren, accuses us as Christians, uh, before, before the throne of God day and night. How, how could Satan accuse us uh, in heaven day and night except we give him reason to accuse us day and night? We're, we're more imperfect than uh, everyone realizes except the devil. So he has access, and to this day he accuses. He accuses me uh, to God. He accuses you as a Christian to God. Now, thankfully, we have an advocate before the Father, a defense attorney, Jesus, the righteous in heaven, who then is our defense attorney in that kind of uh, courtroom that uh, appears up in heaven. But he still has access to heaven. One day he won't. Uh, there's going to come a day 
when he and the Antichrist and the false prophet are going to be cast into the eternal lake of fire until just before the white throne judgment of God spoken of in Revelation chapter 20. But for now he has access there. And so Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, and God initiates the conversation, and he asks him a question, uh, where, from where do you come? And, uh, and, and so Satan answered his, concerning his activity. He answered the Lord, and he said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. And so what's he doing when he's going back and forth on the earth uh, looking around? He's seeking those whom he might uh, devour. Again, we'll see in just a couple of weeks on Sunday morning, uh, Peter wrote, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And so he's speaking of the fact that he walks to and fro on the earth. In the Old Testament, the idea of walking to and fro on a piece of property was an indication that you owned it. He's called the God of this world, the God of this age. And so he's kind of, the world is kind of his property. Jesus purchased it on the cross, but he hasn't taken possession of it. He will do that. Ultimately, but the world is is kind of the devil's playground uh, at, at this point uh, in time. It's interesting, I think, too, to note uh, that the devil is not uh, uh, omnipresent. He is an omni anything. He's not omnipotent. He's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient, all knowing. Uh, the devil is a very finite being. He is much more powerful than uh, you and I. Much more powerful than the average angel. But he is still a creation, and he can only be one place at a time. And, and so uh, sometimes the idea in people's minds is they think about the devil, and uh, we tend to think of him as the opposite of God. And we know what we're kind of thinking related to that, that he stands opposed to God. But when we talk about somebody being the opposite of God, it intimates equality with God on the opposing side. The devil is not that. The devil is a finite being. God is infinite. There is an infinite gulf between the infinite and the finite. He is not in the God class at all. And, and so here's, uh, here he is. He's limited to, uh, to being one place at a time. He uses a demonic realm very, very effectively to give the appearance of uh, being a lot of places all at the same time or, or overseeing that realm. But this is what he was doing. And the Lord said to Satan, And he gives a little bragging on Job. Have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So he, God begins to brag about Job to Satan. Now you may say, God, would you please not brag about me uh, to Satan, Satan, please. Um, Any good that I am, could that be our little secret? (laughs) But what the Lord is communicating uh, to the devil is, yes, Satan, you have dominion over much of the world, but I notice that you're having a little bit of problem uh, dominionating, that's not a real word, uh, dominating Job uh, in in the world. For all your activity, all your everything, uh, I've got a witness in that world that is uh, very, very strong, and you're not having much success turning him uh, your way. And so the Lord speaks to him, 
this wonderful title he gives to Job, My Servant. Well, Satan is not going to take that uh, sitting down, and so he has an accusation that he raises, and, and he, he comes up against God's sanctified boasting concerning Job. And so Satan answered the Lord, and he said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him and around his household and around all that he has on every side? How would the devil know there was a hedge around Job and everything he had except he tried to probe it, try to get through it, find some kind of weakness by which to uh, infiltrate into Job's life, and he was unable to find that. We have a hedge around our lives as Christians as we just live a life of simple obedience to God's Word. That puts a hedge around our life. We go backslide or go crazy and disobey the Lord and willful disobedience and all, then we just open up holes in that hedge that you could drive a white freight liner through. But this living the life that he was living, there was a hedge. I'm also convinced the Bible talks in the book of Hebrews, talks about angels being ministering spirits to the heirs of salvation. That's you and I. They're typically called a guardian angel. And there, uh, there it seems to be that indication that angels are assigned to us. However, God uh, sees fit related to what's going on in our life, is calling upon our life, whatever we're in the middle of, that kind of thing. And I think that they constitute a part of this hedge around our lives. But we have a hedge around our lives. The devil is not free to just, on his own whim, uh, penetrate uh, God's hedge that he has around our lives through his word and by his Holy Spirit and through uh, angelic beings. And so uh, God, that hedge is there and it only can be penetrated as God allows it to be penetrated and he only allows it to be penetrated to do something good uh, in our lives. Let me read you a verse that's important concerning all of this. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. God says about trials that come into our lives, temptations. No temptation has overtaken you such as is common to man. You ever have a temptation? You say, I'm the biggest creep in the whole world. How could I get tempted? Are you ever tempted while you're like in church worshiping the Lord? Where did that thought come from? I know I'm the only person, so you haven't done that. God, would you just smite any person that's acting holy right now? When they... No, it is weird about our lives, though, isn't it? So whenever we're tempted by something, it doesn't mean that we're like in the freak show category of some kind of a circus. We're all facing the same things, every one of us, every kind of temptation in, in life. But what we need to know in the middle of that, uh, that uh, temptation is that God is faithful, Paul said, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. He'll give us the grace to withstand the temptation. Uh, or with the temptation, he'll also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear. So God will never allow us to be tempted above what we can bear. Somebody's saying, boy, I think I'm redlining Lord right here on this, but he'll never allow that. And there's a confidence in our life that when the devil attacks our lives with any kind of temptation, that we can look and say, God is gonna, in this temptation, God is giving me one of two things. 
He is either giving me the grace to stand in this situation or he is giving me a way of escape out of it. You remember Joseph in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis when Potiphar's wife laid up hands on his robe and said, lie with me. And uh, he looked at that and said, all right, I'm not sensing the grace here. I think I need a way of, uh, of escape. And so he fled the room, uh, leaving his robe there. And, and so one of those two things is going to be offered to us. Now, Satan then goes on uh, and, uh, and speaks further and says, You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in, in the land. But, ah, there's the word. But now, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, he possesses, and he will surely curse you to your face. Now, Satan suggested that Job was not serving God out of a love for God, but only because of what he could get uh, from God. And that if God removed those benefits and those blessings from his life, he removed those rewards, then God would not only, uh, Job would not only abandon God, but he would even curse God to his face. So he's accusing Job to God of being a mercenary. He's just a fair-weathered follower of yours. The reason he follows you is you haven't put him to any kind uh, of a test. And essentially what God is saying to Job is, uh, or to the Lord is, that Job doesn't follow you for you. Uh, but he, he doesn't follow you just for the relationship with you. He follows you for the blessings because it pays to follow you. And the idea is, he's saying to God, is no one would follow you just for you. That's quite, that's quite an insult to throw in God's face. No one would follow you just for the relationship with you. You have to pay people. You have to bribe people. You have to bless people into following you. You have to entice them with some kind of personal gain. Job, he loves your blessings. He doesn't love you. You take those blessings away from his life and he'll curse you to your face. And to me, that's one of the most, one of the great dangers of the prosperity doctrine and the prosperity movement today that calls on people to follow God because he will make them prosperous. He will make them healthy and wealthy if they have enough faith. Job is going to lose all of his wealth and he is going to lose his health all the way up to within an inch of dying. He is, he is, he is wishing he could die because of the infirmity that Satan is ultimately going to bring into his life. And yet he's going to continue to walk with the Lord. But I see this whole doctrine going on. I see it sometimes on Christian television. I don't watch much Christian television, but most of what I see is that prosperity, faith movement kind of stuff that's on, on television. And it's just nurturing this whole idea of walk with God on the basis of what he will give to you. If you will do this, then God will do this. And it's always ten times more than what you would do for God. And it is nurturing this very thing in people's lives. 
It is nurturing the idea that God is not worthy of your fellowship or worthy of a relationship with you simply because he is the great and awesome and peerless and majestic God that he is. The only reason we can get you carnal people to walk with God and obey God is for his blessings but not for him. And the false teachers that go in that direction, have already given up in their own minds the idea. They have already fallen prey to the lie of the devil, and that is we can't get anyone to worship God and walk with God just for the relationship. And so what we have to do is we've got to tap into their carnality and somehow make it worth it to them financially and go down to that base lower level. And it's to go right down to the level of the devil in all of this. It is a terrible thing that's going on. And I very rarely, I I try not to because I could pummel on some section of the body of Christ on a weekly basis. But you're not connected to it, and I'm not connected to it for the most part. But when it comes up in the Scriptures, I'm happy to deal with it. This whole prosperity thing of luring people into beginning a relationship with God and maintaining a relationship with God on the basis of what they can get from Him is demonic. It's terrible. It's an affront to the character, it's an affront to God and to his reputation. It's an insult to him. And it's an insult to the people that that kind of thing is being preached to. Because it's saying something terrible about us that's believed in the mind of the person that would speak such a thing. Don't ever fall prey to that. So the same old kind of lies, they're prevalent even, uh, even today. And so this is the terrible accusation that is uh, made by the devil. And you notice, not just against Job. He is, he is insulting and making an accusation against the Lord himself. And, and it really makes me, when I come to this section of the book of Job, and I think it's intended to in all of our lives, it really makes us stop and think about whether Satan could make that same accusation concerning any of us and have it stick. I think the devil sees a lot of it. As soon as some blessing dries up, the life of a child of God, some material blessing, some physical difficulty or illness enters into our life, and the person just jettisons almost immediately from God. What does it reveal? That person was never in it for the relationship. That person was in it for what they could get from God. And the bump that occurred in their life exposed it to be so. True story about uh, Hudson Taylor, a great missionary, inland uh, China mission, great missionary to uh, China a couple of centuries ago. Hudson Taylor was one time um, in kind of a restaurant kind of environment and in and there was a new missionary that had come over to China. And he put a glass uh, of water on the table, and he filled it up to the t- uh, nearly to the top with the water, and he took his hand and he just slammed it down on the table, and the whole table shook, and the water came shaking out of the glass. And he said, that's what China's going to do to you. 
It is going to cause to bump out of your life whatever is inside of your life. And that's the truth about the bumps or the difficulties or the trials in life. They expose what's inside of us. So again, a great example, we're driving down the road with a nice cup of coffee or something from some wonderful place that serves wonderful coffee. We know, so take the lid off of that. Oh, I'm careful and steady. I want to get... And then you get the little bump going out of the uh, parking lot and it spills all over you. And, you know, and the whole thing. And I should learn on this. And, but the bump never put the coffee in the cup. The bump always exposes what's already in the cup. And that's why one of the richest things that can happen in a Christian's life is when God allows a season of difficulty into our life. It doesn't have to be as difficult as it is with Job. But something happens in our life. Something We lose something that is precious to us and important to us, maybe forever, maybe for a season. And we continue to walk with the Lord. And we never... And, and when we do... It isn't like God goes, God is not sweating bullets in the book of Job. He knows what is inside of Job. But we don't know what's inside of us. And when we look and we see that God allows us through a difficult season in our life, and we realize that this particular thing used to be our life before we came to know the Lord, and and then now we realize it's gone out of our life but the relationship with God has become more important to us than this thing or that thing or that relationship or this relationship, and it's a revelation to us and a valuable one to just stop and realize, thank you, Lord, for letting me see that I am not in this relationship with you for what I can get from you. You're doing something real in my life between you and I. I'm in this relationship with you because of you and because of who you are. That's what I really count as valuable. And that's what, and, and that, that kind of test is, and when we come through it, as Job is going to come through it, it's a great, great revelation and a beautiful thing to realize about our own life and the relationship with God that he's developed within our lives. And some of us just were so weak and so weird and so crazy apart from the Lord that we can't even think about walking away from the Lord even for a minute because if we walked away from his grace, we don't know what we'd be in five minutes. And so we've been wonderfully spoiled from ever returning back to the Lord because we're uh, seated and clothed and in our right mind. And uh, we wouldn't otherwise be that without the Lord. So this is the accusation that was made. And uh, it's a powerful accusation and uh, often true and uh, good to let it search our own hearts as well. And then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. All right? That's your theory? You think people will only walk with me for what I'll give them? They won't walk with me for the relationship. They won't do it for me. They don't get anything out of the relationship with me beyond just material blessings. You go ahead and take your theory and put it to the test. And he freed Job to, he freed the devil to attack Job in every way short of touching him physically. 
Sometimes we think about we're in the world, we say as a Christian, the world, we're in a, a, a battleground. And then sometimes, uh, you know, we come to realize we are the battleground. And that's what's going to happen here uh, with Job. And so permission is given. Now, the fascinating thing here, and Job will never know it. We have no idea that Job ever came to realize it until maybe later on in his life after kind of a full restoration of things. Uh, It's highly likely that Job was used by the Holy Spirit to author the book of, uh, of, of Job. But nobody knows that all of these circumstances, everything that, that is, is happening and surrounding Job's life, and, and to realize that it's true concerning our own, our own lives as well, that just great and unknown circumstances uh, surrounding our lives can, can be happening with God's reputation and the devil's reputation at stake. And so Satan then departs now to launch the first part of his attack. There was a day when the sons and the daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And then the Sabians, they raided them and took them away. We're talking about hundreds of animals. Indeed, they've killed the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, I mean, another comes in, interrupts him right on top of it. And he also came in and he said, The fire of God, maybe lightning or something, fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I have alone to escape to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another comes breathless and says, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels, took them away, yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So all of this is is wiped out, his servants and his material possessions. And while he was still speaking, another also came, the deepest blow of all, and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and suddenly a great wind, maybe a tornado, came across the wilderness, struck the four corners of the house, it fell on the young people, and they are dead. I alone have escaped to tell you. And the devil takes it. This is why he's called a destroyer. God said, you can touch everything he has except for his, his, his physical uh, body. And the devil went as far as he was allowed to go. And it's just a very, very, just perfectly timed and perfectly uh, coordinated use of people and natural resources. Apparently he can use nature as he's allowed to at times to come in and to bring all in just this cluster, this small period of time to have these things come in on Job one after the other after the other in order to break him in his relationship with God. And if you don't think the devil didn't understand that the devil's reputation was at stake in terms of breaking Job and proving his accusation that people will only follow you for what you give, your blessings, and not for you, then you don't understand the devil or the passage. So devil understands his reputations at stake here and his accusation against God's people and against God. And then Job arose and his response, he tore his robe, sign of mourning, you tear your robe, it was to symbolize that your heart's been torn in two. And he shaved his head, 
You're an older man. You would have a hoary head, which is to have white hair. And it just spoke of your prominence and it spoke of the blessing of your life. And he just shaved all of that off. And then he fell to the ground and he cursed God. That's not what he did. He fell to the ground. You got to get this. When at this particular moment in verse 20, all of heaven is watching Job. The entire angelic realm is watching. God knows what he's going to do. But the angels don't know what he's going to do. And everybody is watching. God's reputation is at stake. The devil's reputation is at stake. Who is going to win here in the life of Job? And they watch what he's going to do. He falls down on his knees to the ground. What's he going to do? And it says that he worshipped the Lord. And so... He was communicating in that fall to his knees and worshiping that his relationship with God was more valuable to him than everything else in life. That he didn't follow God for the blessings. He followed God for God because God was worthy to be followed and worthy to be worshipped. And so the disasters didn't drive him away from God. They drew him closer to God. And the reason they drew him closer to God is because his relationship with God had always been the most important part of his life. And the circumstances just revealed it to be so. And then you notice what he said. He said, what's a man going to say in a circumstance like that? And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, So we all do. And naked I shall return there, that is to death. He said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In other words, he says, I came into the world naked. I'm going to leave naked. I didn't come in with anything. I'm not going to be taking anything out. That's not what life is all about. He's saying the only thing I truly possess in this life And the only thing I will take out of this life is my relationship with God. It's the only blessing in life that won't be interrupted by death. And so he he speaks here and says, I still possess what is most valuable to me in spite of the greatness of the loss, and that is my relationship with God. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. He's saying, everything I ever had belong to God. Think about the character of this man. He has lost everything in an hour. And he looks at it and he said, it never belonged to me to begin with. I was just a steward of it. It all belonged to God. It was all his blessing. I wouldn't have had any of it apart from him. And so I never considered it mine uh, to begin with. And so God is free to do with what is his as he please. And then he said, blessed be the name of the Lord. In other words, I bless his name. And it's one of the most beautiful statements of faith in God and the entire Bible because of the circumstance in which it is given. He falls on his knees, he worships, and he says, blessed be the name of the Lord. And then all of this Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong." Didn't blame God for what happened in his life. He didn't know what had happened. He didn't know why it had happened. But he didn't blame God for it. 
And in doing what he did, Satan, he revealed that Satan was wrong about Job. Job loved God for the relationship, not what he could get out of the relationship. Beautiful picture. Tremendous faith, this man, uh, Job. And we will pick things up and, and uh, in chapter 2, Lord willing, next Sunday night and uh, continue the account.